in for a few days of sunshine. I don't know if you've seen the weather forecast. And uh, whenever the weather's like that, it always makes me think about holidays. And I love holidaying in the Lake District. And uh, a number of years ago, I was staying in Bowness. And with a day of hill walking ahead of me, I decided that a three-course breakfast was absolutely justifiable. So I started with a bowl full of juicy, sweet grapefruit segments. Then I moved on to my fix of Weetabix. And finally, a full English breakfast that looked a little bit like this. So I had bacon, sausages, mushrooms, the works. And I found myself, as the meal came to the end, with a corner of hot buttered toast. And before me, a perfect, untouched dome of golden egg yolk. And the egg white had been carefully cut away. So in I went for a good old dunk. And as I raised it to my mouth, I heard, Joanna! I knew I was in trouble. You see, the problem was the egg weren't actually on my plate. <laughs> it was on my sister's. They weren't a total stranger. But, um, yeah, I had, I'd finished my breakfast and I had an overage of toast and her egg just looked so irresistible. Now, I have to reassure you, if ever we sat at a breakfast table together, I no longer trespass on other people's breakfast plates and I don't hijack eggs. But in that particular moment... I had fallen into temptation. Well, I'm hoping that I'm not the only one here today that can admit to that. I think it's a common experience for us all, would you agree? I think regardless of your age, gender, life experience, we all at times face temptation. And sometimes it's really obvious, but other times it's that very subtle first step onto a slippery slope. And in recent weeks, I've been taking some time just at the end of the day to reflect with God. And he's gently been revealing my heart motivations. You know, the things that drive your, your actions and your words. And I realize that perhaps they're not as pure and altruistic as I'd like to think that they are. So I thought it'd be really interesting to look at the subject of temptation and how to overcome it today. So let's dive right into the Bible, and we'll start by taking a look at how Jesus faced temptation in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel's in the New Testament, so that's the second half of the Bible. And we understand that Luke was a doctor, so he was a man of reputable standing, and he'd taken it upon himself to write a full account of Jesus' life. And he was really keen to help the reader understand that Jesus came as the Son of God the Messiah, the Chosen One, and that his mission was to defeat Satan and bring salvation and healing to man, that he'd come, basically, to seek and save the lost. So let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy, Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and re revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and the authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. So I'd love to consider with you now three ways in which I think this passage speaks to us. Firstly, it's about Jesus and what we can learn from him and his experience. Secondly, I think it tells us about how humanity as a whole faces temptation. And thirdly, I'd like to drill right down into what it looks like for you and me. Because I'd love to think that at the end of today, we can all go away perhaps a little better prepared to face temptation and ready to spur each other on. So it's about Jesus, it's about humanity, and it's about you and me. So let's take a look at what it tells us about Jesus. Well, sometimes when we're focusing on a a particular passage of Scripture, it's really helpful to understand what happens before and afterwards. So in the previous chapter, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, and he has this incredible experience. So as he's coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and an audible voice is heard saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Can you imagine that? That would be absolutely fantastic. I wonder if people were there, you know, with their heads turning. Where's that that voice coming from? But that must have been an incredible experience for Jesus to be publicly affirmed that way. And I kind of think maybe he was on a high after that. And Luke, the author, obviously wants us to note it because he's included it in his account. And if we skip forward to take a look at what happens after Jesus faces the temptations, well, that's when Jesus begins moving into his public ministry. And we find him preaching in synagogues, he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons. And basically, he's revealing that he is the Son of God. So beforehand, he's baptised. And he's affirmed as the Son of God. And afterwards, he's qualifying that title by living out his life purpose through his public ministry in word and action. So if you kind of take a step back from it and look at those three chapters, it seems to be like Satan is strategically picking his time. And he's approaching Jesus and targeting his identity as the Son of God. And his purpose, his mission to seek and save the lost. I don't know if you've noticed in that passage that I read as well that it says that Jesus was fasting during those 40 days. Can you see how Satan seems to target physical and emotional vulnerability as well? Jesus is incredibly hungry. 
And I have to say, as someone who can't even resist a, a sister's breakfast, I cannot imagine what it's like to go without food for that long. So Jesus is there. He's alone in the wilderness. And perhaps any elation he felt from his baptism is ebbing away. And this is the moment that Satan chooses to present himself, when Jesus might be seen at being at his weakest and most vulnerable. But Jesus does resist. So let's take a look at how Jesus resists Satan. So I'm going to retell it now, but if you give me a little poetic license, I hope it will help me to make my points. So Jesus is incredibly hungry, Jesus, uh, Satan knows that, and so he tempts Jesus to turn stone into bread, basically to satisfy that hunger. And Jesus responds, You're suggesting that feeding my body is a higher priority than obeying God. But scriptures say that man cannot live by bread alone, therefore I won't. And we see him choosing to trust Father God for his strength and his sustenance, rather than use his power to meet his own immediate need. The second time around, Jesus says to Satan, you're offering me universal power, what, to become king of kings, lord of all the earth? But it's at the cost of worshipping you. And God has told us that we should worship him only and serve only him. And assuming that Jesus knew at some point that he would indeed own those titles of King of Kings and Lord of all the earth, he's showing and demonstrating in that moment that he's choosing to submit to the Father's will, his plan, his timing, and his purpose for his life, rather than assume independence and use his power for his own gain or self-interest. And the third time, the final time, Jesus is saying, you're proposing that I should test God's promise of protection. Why? To create a spectacle so that onlookers would have to believe I'm the Son of God? But the scriptures have told us that we're not to test this God in this way. And Jesus refuses to test God just to prove that he is the Son of God. Do you notice a pattern here? Every time Jesus responds to Satan by saying, the scriptures say, the scriptures say, the scriptures say, Jesus knew that God's word carries ultimate authority and basically it was effective at shutting the enemy up and he uses it to counter every attempt that the enemy makes to undermine his identity and to derail him from his mission. You see, what I see Jesus doing here is he's emptying himself of his power and glory and he's putting himself in the position of a, a normal human being, a man who's decided to come under the authority of the law of God. You see, if at any point Jesus had succumbed to temptation or abused his power in any way, it wouldn't have been able to say about him that he was able to identify mankind and he wouldn't have been able to fulfill his purpose to become saviour for mankind. So he overcomes Satan by his undeviating obedience to the will of God. So to sum it up, the passage is telling us about Jesus that in him we have a saviour who has 
overcome temptation, but he's also defeated Satan and his schemes. That's good news, isn't it? So let's look more broadly now at what this passage reveals to us about humanity, humanity as a whole, and how, how we face temptation. Well, having seen how the enemy moved on Jesus, it kind of makes sense to think perhaps he'd use the same tactics on us, that there'd be familiar patterns for us to watch out for. So we can expect to find ourselves facing temptation when we feel at our weakest and most vulnerable. You know, in those dark and difficult times when you're very aware that you're alone and what your needs are. But it could also come after a fantastic high. That's something to watch out for. And we can expect the enemy to try to undermine our identity, not just as children of God, but just that sense of self, self-worth, self-value. And also we can expect him to try to divert us away from God's plans and purposes for our lives. You know, those things that we do that we love doing, whether we're paid for them or not, and they bring significance and meaning to our lives. So I imagine on such occasions when the enemy comes our way, he might say things like, if God really loved you, should you really be experiencing such difficulty? And perhaps we'd find ourselves beginning to question God or moving in a way where we're, it looks like we're trying to earn God's love. Or similarly, it might be that the enemy whispers, if this is God's plan, shouldn't things be happening by now? Why are you still having to wait? And in those moments, we might be tempted to step in and take matters into our own hands, not realising that we're beginning to lean away from dependence and trusting God. So basically, I, I think the enemy will do anything he can to erode our belief that God is a good father who wants only good things for us. He'll do anything to distort that image into something like that of a, a really harsh taskmaster who, no matter how hard you try, you would never please. And you know, when we reflect on that passage and we hear Satan say to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, does it remind you of something? Because when I was thinking about it, I thought, gosh, you know, that sounds so familiar. It sounds like the same subtle and persuasive voice that Adam and Eve heard in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And he sows just enough doubt into Eve's mind at that point. You won't really die. Subtext. God's lied to you. God can't be trusted. It's so subtle. It's not always obvious to us at first. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve fell for his deception. And as a result of that, sin and death came into the world. You know, I think we all encounter that persuasive voice at times. It'll say different things depending on our vulnerabilities and our hang-ups. It might say, you've worked so hard lately, you've put in so many extra hours. Round your mileage up when you put your expense claim in. And the temptation is to be deceptive in some way. It might try to undermine our self-worth. You're not clever enough to do that job. Don't, don't apply for it. You'll only face rejection again. I've heard that voice. 
It's the voice that's told me recently, you can't get up on stage and speak to the whole church. I wonder what that voice says to you. You know, we can sit as observers and watch what unfolds in the Garden of Eden. Watch what unfolds in the lives of our family and friends. And we're aware that they're hearing that voice that's sowing doubt, that's tempting them to do the wrong thing. And we can be saying, don't listen, don't listen. But the fact of the matter is, is that Adam and Eve did. We do. But Jesus didn't. So some of what we face when we face temptation is down to the enemy and his tactics. But it's also about the choices that we make and how we choose to respond. And I think one of the key things here is to know ourselves. God knows us intimately. And the Bible tells us that he's familiar with all of our ways. I think sometimes when, I don't know about you, but when I look at the Bible, it can be hard to relate to some of the ancient characters that are portrayed in the life stories there. But you know what? Times have changed, but temptation hasn't. They struggled back then with the same kinds of things that we struggle with today. How about sexual temptation? That's in more than a few stories. I guess we'd all love to think that we have the same resolve as Joseph, who was able to resist the attempts of his boss's wife to seduce him into bed. But then we read about King David, who was overcome with lust for Bathsheba, who was another man's wife. And all sorts of horrible things followed that. What about unfulfilled promises? We read about Sarah, who was promised by God that one day she would bear her own child. But she waits and she waits, and she eventually becomes impatient. And so she takes matters into her own hands, and she gives her maidservant, Hagar, to her husband, Abraham. Hagar gets pregnant and begins to gloat over Sarah, and it leads to all sorts of conflict and strife. On another occasion, Moses is having a one-to-one with God on the top of a mountain. And Aaron is down, down in the valley with the people of God. And they're getting restless. And they want something to worship. So they give him gold. And he ends up creating this image of a calf. And he leads them into idolatry. Because in that moment, appeasing the people becomes a higher priority than obeying God. You know, we might ask ourselves, what causes us to behave this way? Well, it tells us in the Bible that actually it's our own sinful desires that entice us away. Like Aaron, we prioritize other things over obedience to God. And like Sarah, we stop trusting God. We doubt his goodness to father us well, to love us, to protect us and to provide for us. And instead of trusting God and honouring his ways, we gradually lean away and begin to do our own thing. And it leads to this separation from God and eventually destruction and loss of some kind. So basically, the Bible reveals to us that humanity is vulnerable to falling into temptation. It's not a modern problem. It's a problem that's existed throughout the history of humanity 
And we find ourselves on those occasions robbed of our trust in God and robbed of any kind of closeness to him. So we've looked at what the passage tells us about Jesus and we've looked at what it tells us about humanity as a whole. But what I want to do now is just drill right down in what does this mean for you and me? Well, like I said at the beginning, I really hope I'm not the only one here that knows that feeling of having fallen into temptation. I think no matter how hard we try, we'll all find ourselves in that place where we're having to make a choice to resist or we give in. Whether it's a weakness for something to make us feel good, be that food, drugs, alcohol, sex, relationships. I don't know if you're anything like me, but like the Vicar of Dibley, I, have, I find a lot of comfort from chocolate. That's me being honest. Maybe we have a tendency to exaggerate the truth at times or even tell, tell outright porkies to get what we want. We embellish our CV to get the job that we want. Or we lie to ourselves, we convince ourselves, it won't matter if I sleep with my fiancé, the wedding's only weeks away. Perhaps, like the character Scrooge, we have a growing preoccupation with our own sense of well-being, and we don't realise that we're cultivating this false sense of security and independence from God as we reach toward material wealth and position. Or perhaps we battle with that desire to conceal our real self and project a more acceptable image to get what we want, a bit like Robin Williams' character in Mrs. Doubtfire. Or we simply long for romantic and sexual affection and admiration. Everyone has weaknesses and areas of vulnerability. And to know what they are and to be able to admit to them, especially to others who hopefully would just accept us without judging us, that's a great first step to freedom. Freedom from those repeating cycles of behaviour and thought patterns that are often accompanied with shame and guilt and other negative feelings that overwhelm us when we become overcome with temptation. In Corinthians, Paul tells us, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And at first reading, we might kind of get a bit frustrated and think, does the writer of those words really know the pain of my struggle? But there's hope here if we're willing to look for it. There is a way out. It may not be easy and it may involve a battle, but there is a way out. So let's turn our attention now to the kind of things that can help us to overcome temptation, things that we saw Jesus doing. There is some stuff that we can do on our own. Simple things like just praying and talking to God about stuff. The Bible tells us that we should pray at all times with all kinds of prayers and requests. It encourages us to cast our anxieties on the Lord because he cares about us. 
and it assures us that he hears our prayers. Fasting, not my favorite discipline, I have to add, but uh, we saw that Jesus did it. And it strikes me that it's kind of like a physical symbol where in fasting we're emptying ourselves in order to allow more room for God in our lives. And for whatever portion of time we're fasting for, be that one meal time or several days, that's a really key time to be pressing into God, to be saying, Lord, will you help me right now with this struggle? What is it that you want to say to me right now, Lord? What is it that you're doing in my life? Reading the Bible, not just knowing it in our heads, but believing it in our hearts. I mentioned earlier how Jesus confronted Satan every time with Scripture, and it was powerful enough to shut him up. And it sends a message loud and clear that God is true to his word and he's faithful to his promises. In Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with the wisdom he gives. The word is really powerful. And I know this from personal experience. There was, there was one time when um, I kept waking up in the middle of the night. And uh, basically, I was just so anxious that I was waking up with panic attacks. And it just kept happening until I reached a point where I thought, I can either just keep being robbed of sleep or I can ask God to help me with this. And as I went to the Lord, I felt like he just dropped this verse in my mind from Psalm 4. And it says, I will lie down and sleep in peace, O Lord, for you make me dwell in safety. And every time that I woke up, I'd repeat it again and again and again until I fell asleep. And I did that for a number of nights. But you know, it was really effective because that pattern of waking up in the middle of the night just stopped. So, you know, the power in the, the word of God, it's there if we'll ask the Lord how to use it and to bring it to bear when we're struggling. Worship, the songs that we sing, you know, often it's just direct quotes from scripture. And a number of my friends, when they're, they're having a hard time, they'll talk about just coming home, switching on the worship just resting in God's presence and letting that worship just wash over them. It's a fantastic way of getting the word into you. And you know, sometimes if we can, regardless of our circumstance, make the choice to praise God anyway, I believe that positions us for spiritual breakthrough. So there's a few things that we can pursue on our own. But there are a number of things that can help us by being part of a community. You know, it's such a gift to be part of a small group here. To have a number of friends around us that we know are for us, who withhold judgment and love and encourage us to be everything that we can be. They're the kind of people that say, you know what? We none of us are perfect. We're all on that journey of transformation. And a friend like that, could be somebody that you might choose to be an accountability partner, someone that you give specific permission to, to ask you about your struggle. How are you doing with? And they name your struggle. I understand that for a number of months now, there's a men's recovery group, and they've been meeting because they're struggling with an addiction to pornography. 
And a number of them have accountability partners. And they've so benefited from that. To have someone where they can be real, not judged, and encouraged to just let the light of God into that situation. And from what I hear, they're finding increasing measures of freedom from that addiction. It's an amazing thing to be invited into that kind of relationship where we can be real and allow ourselves to be seen, warts and all, and trust that we'll be loved even so. That is love at its best, isn't it? But you know, ultimately, we have hope because of what Jesus did. In Philippians 2, chapter 2, it brings it into focus as it speaks of Jesus in this way. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. So Jesus overcame by his obedience. But I guess, like me, you're thinking, you know, I I really don't think, as hard as I might try, I'll ever be as obedient as Jesus. So where does that leave us when we mess up? I just want to tell you this one final story that I hope will illustrate the point. When I was a little girl, I was never very good at walking very far, I had my favourite phrase, my legs couldn't want to. And one evening, uh, as a family, we were returning from a trip into the centre of Birmingham. And the closest we could get to home that night was a bus stop that was two miles away. So at the thought of that, I just scowled and I was so tired and grouchy. And all I remember from that night is that the sky was dark with stars and amber lights shone from the lampposts overhead. But I do remember waking up in bed the next day and I thought, how did I get home? So I ran downstairs to my mum and I said, mum, how did I get home last night? And she said, Joe, your dad carried you. And I kind of felt a bit sheepish then and I said, did Julie, my sister, walk? No, Joe, your dad carried you both. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the father's heart towards us. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all of his kids home. And so he's made sure that there's a way. You know, as I've talked about temptation, I think maybe some of us have been churning inside because we need to know that God wants us. We sang that worship song, didn't we? And and I noted the lyrics down. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And some of you are doubting that because of the things you're struggling with. Well, I want to encourage you. God wants you. He loves you so much. Jesus' obedience in the desert place when he faced temptation and his obedience to endure the cross and trust his father's plan has made a way for us to escape temptation and to enjoy close relationship with Father God. Let me close with this scripture from Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now listen to this next part. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Isn't God wonderful? If you're able to, shall we just stand now? And I think uh, Nigel and Susan are going to, Nigel's going to come up.